This will actually be our last psalm uh, for this year, uh, and we'll transition to some other things uh, beginning next week as we move into the fall. Um, uh, but So we'll put a bookmark here and maybe you know, hopefully pick up next year with Psalm 24. But today we're in Psalm 23. Um, and uh, a couple weeks ago, I was talking about you know, coming up to Psalm 23 with Caitlin, and she told me a story from her childhood. She said that when she thinks of Psalm 23, she always thinks of a big purple jelly bean. And I was, I was intrigued, so she, she went on to share that she has this, you know, vivid memory uh, of being in preschool, uh, this group of, you know, three and four-year-olds, and their teacher sat down with a big picture book uh, and read Psalm 23, uh, and after reading through it, told them all, all right, repeat the first line, the Lord is my shepherd right? Let, let's repeat that. And, and when you say it, you'll get a jelly bean, right? Um, and so they went all around the circle and, you know, everyone said, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And uh, Kate, Caitlin came all the way towards the end. And, and as she was telling me the story, you know, she was this nervous kind of, oh, it's, you know, four words. Am I going to get it right? I really want that jelly bean. Um, and so it got to her and the Lord is my shepherd, right? And so she got this big old purple jelly bean, and that stuck with her. Um, the Lord is my shepherd means big purple jelly beans, right? Um, and so, you know, this past week, uh, Caitlin and I uh, were in North Carolina. We got to visit some of her family there, and, and I was talking with them. And again, I mentioned, you know, oh yeah, Psalm 23 is coming up. And one of the family members shared a very similar story. Uh, of a little girl in Bible class uh, who was asked to memorize the first verse of Psalm 23. And they would, you know, test it out the next week. And so, you know, she was so excited. She studied it and rehearsed it all week long. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, on and on, trying to remember this. And so the next week came and the, the Bible class got together and the teacher said, all right, did you guys memorize the first verse of Psalm 23? And most of the kids kind of shrugged and were like, no, not really. But this little girl was so excited. She raised her hand and she said, oh, I, me, me, pick me. And so she bursts out, the Lord is my shepherd and that's all I want. And as the family member was telling the story, they said, well, she might have gotten the lines wrong, but that's, that's right, right? The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want, right? That is good, uh, good theology. Uh, but judging by at least these stories, my guess is if you were around church, uh, especially as a child, uh, or, you know, have been around church for any amount of time, you've probably heard Psalm 23 or even been asked to memorize it, right? It is a, it's long been a very popular psalm. Uh, children memorize it. There are paintings of it uh, on and on. It is this short, simple, but vivid and profound psalm. And, and so let's dive into this psalm together today. Let's read it. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths 
for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for being our shepherd, for being the one who provides and protects and prepares us for what is to come. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture today, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this psalm is classic, right? I mean, it is uh, filled with these rich images. It's tender in the way that it communicates them. Uh, Very likely, as we read it, you were beginning to imagine some of these things, right? It's just filled with picture after picture. However, I want to look a little bit more closely. What do we imagine as we read this psalm? What do we imagine? You see, uh, this is an incredible psalm to meditate and reflect on. But when we picture it outside of its context, I think we end up missing the point that is really being made. You see, I I mentioned earlier that this psalm has inspired many pieces of art, right? Many different paintings and and images and stuff. One of the most popular depictions of of this psalm is a painting from 1943. Looks like this. Maybe you've seen it before, right? Is this maybe close to what you were imagining as we read the psalm? Right? There's this, you know, bearded shepherd, Jesus figure, wearing robes, standing amidst the sheep with lush green grass all around. There's that flowing river in the background, little pops of color and flowers throughout. Right? Sort of romantic picture. I think this is often what we have in mind when we consider Psalm 23, green pastures, still waters, a gentle shepherd. And I mean, it is beautiful, very romantic. But the problem is that this picture is almost entirely wrong. I mean, compare this American painting to a photo of sheep actually in Israel. There you go. It looks a little bit different, right? A little bit less romantic, but a, a lot more realistic. Uh, so, so here's what I want to do uh, this morning as we consider some of these images. As I, I want to walk through them, but consider their actual context. 
where they are actually set, where they're actually from, because I think this is going to give us a much more realistic picture of what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to, to actually be with God. Because a lot of times we've been told that following Jesus is going to look like this, but in reality, it actually looks a lot more like this. So let's begin. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, this uh, first phrase is incredible and powerful and, and quite uh, countercultural in its original context. Now, we look at the word my, and I mean, we just run straight to it because in America, we are radically individualistic right? My, everything is mine, right? That, that's what we live for so often is me and myself. But in this original setting, this would have been very countercultural uh, because the primary cultural mindset was we, us. Uh, and, and I think in many ways, we actually need to be challenged into that kind of me and us mentality. Uh, we, we and us. But there is something to be said about how wonderfully personal this psalm is. Because throughout it, it is, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down, right? It's so personal. And, and see, we tend to either run all the way to being super individualistic and completely focused on ourselves, or run all the way to the other end where we're completely focused on other people and completely forget about ourselves. And our faith calls us to stand in the middle of that and hold both of these realities together. God is my shepherd. This is radical, that God can know you personally, and call you individually. But when he does that, it's, it's not by yourself. Sheep don't wander around by themselves, right? Shepherds look over flocks. And so when God calls us personally, he calls us into a community. So this is the first thing that, that is actually radically uh, challenging and, and countercultural in its original context. The Lord is my shepherd. It's amazing. And then there's the word shepherd, right? The Lord is my shepherd. A lot of times when we picture a shepherd, we think of you know, a middle-aged, bearded man standing in the middle of a field somewhere, you know, someone with some kind of, you know, dignity and, and honor standing there with their staff or something. But in reality, uh, in its original context and culture, shepherds were despised people. They were, they were second-class citizens, or if we're honest, probably third or fourth-class citizens. Uh, they were not these noble, middle-aged uh, men, but rather the people who were more insignificant and young, often. Historically, shepherds would have more likely been women or young men. That's actually, historically, what is much more common. Remember, David was a shepherd. Why? Because he's the youngest. He's, he's a little kid, right? That's why he's on shepherd duty. Being a shepherd is not some dignified, noble thing, right? It's, oh, who's the youngest one? Oh, David, he's the scrappy one. Let's put him in charge of the sheep, right? 
And so to call God my shepherd is incredibly subversive. It's an incredibly counter-cultural because it's this picture of a God who is humble, of a God who is lowly and meek. And this subversive image continues uh, throughout the, the history of, of Israel, right? Because God is this humble God, and he calls his people to be a humble people. You know, David begins as this lowly shepherd in 1 Samuel, but then, as we continue reading the story, when he becomes king in 2 Samuel, God says to him, It is you who shall be shepherd of my people, Israel. You who shall be ruler over Israel. In other words, what God is saying to David is, As you become king, don't stop being a shepherd. Continue in that lowly humility. Continue in that, that meek posture. To be king of God's people is not to be a proud ruler, but rather a humble servant. So when God is described as a shepherd, instead of a uh, bearded man uh, standing in the middle of a field somewhere, we need to picture a scrawny, scrappy little kid. That's what it means for the Lord to be my shepherd. It's a picture of humility, lowly, meek. So this, is, this first line already is completely countercultural. God is my shepherd? What? He's personal? He's humble? Let's keep going. Next, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And again, you know, like that painting, we usually picture these lush fields of soft grass. I mean, um, oh, I don't have that there anymore. But, but I'll show you this again, right? This is what it is actually like. Far more accurate picture. Israel is largely a dry wilderness. It looks like this. Most of the place, most of the place around, a lot of it is desert. But as you look at this picture, you can see these little tufts of green sticking out here and there. That's green pastures. Those little tufts here and there, those little bushes in the back, those are the green pastures. You see, the, the desert is far more lively than, than we think. Uh, you know, overnight dew will form, and these little tufts of grass will shoot up here and there among the rocks and the dirt. And so what this psalm says is that in the midst of a dry and barren wilderness, God will bring his people to little tufts of grass little places of sustenance and provision. God sustains us right in the middle of hardship, right in the middle of what seems like an impossible landscape and terrain. And I mean, it, it, it seems just like what Jesus 
taught us to pray, right? Give us today our endless feast. No, give us today our daily bread. Instead of a lush meadow, in, in, in its original context, when the psalmist says green pastures, he's talking about this. God will bring us to the little places that we need each day. He provides a little piece of grass here and a piece of grass there, just what we need for the day. And then there's the next line. He leads me beside still waters. Once more, we picture this quiet place next to a serene stream going by, relaxing like some sort of a day spa, something like that. But that's not what still waters means. You see, the, the desert is dry. And in the midst of a dry land, water can be very dangerous. See, dry land is, is not able to absorb water. So when it rains, it very quickly transforms into a dangerous flood. Um, if I remember right, Mary and Sank uh, were traveling in American desert lands earlier this summer, and your trip got cut short because of some crazy floods that came through, right? And this can happen in a flash. That's why they're called flash floods. And it can be really scary. And so just like the shepherd has to be wise to bring the sheep to places where you'll find these little green pastures, these little tufts of grass in the midst of the wilderness, the shepherd also has to be discerning about water sources. Because even a small flowing stream can be very dangerous in the desert. Here's a picture of a stream located just south of Jerusalem. Uh, and, and, you know, we could think, wow, that looks really nice, right? Maybe this is where the, the sheep are in this psalm. But I want you to watch how quickly things can change. Take a look. That was 30 seconds. 30 seconds. I mean, just imagine how terrible it would be if the sheep were drinking right there. Right? You know, you think you're getting a nice drink of water, and a moment later, you're swept away. Right? What you thought would bring life actually brings death. Right? And I mean, what this psalm says is that God leads us not just to any waters, but to still waters. Waters that bring life. Uh, we so often go looking at whatever we think is going to satisfy our thirst and only end up getting swept away by it in the end. And God doesn't just bring us to any water. He brings us to still water, water that brings life, which is the next line. 
He restores my soul. It could also be translated, he renews my life. God wants us to be safe and alive. And so, you know, all of these different images, pictures, videos, as we place this psalm back in its original geographic context, it still says many of the wonderful and comforting things uh, that we know it to, but with a great deal more depth and realism. I mean, life with God is not cushy oasis. It's not a walk in the park. Rather, it's faithful perseverance through the wilderness, through dry lands, little tufts of grass. And all of this reflects on who God is. Who God actually is. God is a humble shepherd who faithfully brings us to the little tufts of grass and wisely leads us to still waters that bring life. It's all about God's character, which is the next line. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. What does this mean? For his name's sake, right? In, in our culture, this sounds like PR or something, right? It, it sounds like reputation management, public relations. Well, why does God do this? Well, it's for his name's sake. It's so people don't go around saying bad things about him. It's to protect his reputation. That's often what our culture thinks when we talk about names. But in this ancient culture, to refer to someone's name is not primarily to say anything about reputation, but to talk about character. It's not about who someone appears to be, but who someone actually is. And so when the psalm says God does all of this for his name's sake, it's saying God does this because this is who God is. This is who God is. Why is God like a shepherd? Because he's humble, he's lowly, he's meek. Why does God bring us to green pastures? Because he is faithful. Why does God lead us to still waters? Because he's a life giver. Why does God restore our souls? Because he loves us. Because he cares for us. This is God's name. This is God's character. This is who God is. But in the next verse of the psalm, all of this gets put to the test. Because after all of this talk of shepherding and grass and water, the psalm introduces the darkest valley. The darkest valley. The, the valley of the shadow of death, right, is another traditional translation of this phrase. And it's, it's in the dark valleys that our character is tested and revealed. It's in going through the dark valleys that we begin to see just who it is we really believe God is as well. 
So the psalmist says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so I have a couple of questions to ponder here as we look at these images. The first question is this. When you face dark valleys, do you believe that God is present or absent? Do you believe that God is with you or not? Many of us have a tendency to think that dark valleys means that God has left us, that God has abandoned us. Let me just refer you back to Psalm 22 and last week's sermon to consider that question. But, but really, we often let our circumstances tell us what to think about God. Well, this valley is dark, so God must not be here. But the psalmist goes the other way around. Instead of letting circumstances say what to think about God, the psalmist lets God determine what to think about circumstances. I will fear no evil because you are with me. Right? With this line, there is this shift in the whole psalm. Did you notice it? Uh, up until this point, the psalmist has been talking about God. Right? The Lord is my shepherd. He does this. He does that. But here, when the psalmist enters the darkest valley, he begins speaking to God instead of just about God. You are with me. It switches from he to you. And I think this is an example for all of us. When we enter dark valleys, it is good to think about God. But it is vital to talk to God. Bible study does not get people through dark valleys. Prayer does. And this is a vital shift as we grow in God. Moving from people who are about God to becoming people who are with God. People who truly believe that regardless of our circumstances, God is with us. God is with us. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will not fear any evil because you are with me. And so when you face dark valleys, do you believe that God is present? Do you believe that God is with you in the midst. The next question that comes to mind in the midst of, of this verse in the psalm is, when you think of God, are you comforted or are you frightened? When you think of God, are you comforted or are you frightened? 
How do you respond to God's rod and God's staff? This is another vital question about what we believe of God's character. Because somewhere along the way, many of us picked up the idea that God is out to get us. That God is some kind of sky referee just waiting to blow the whistle. Or God is some kind of cop on the side of the road just waiting to blare his siren and turn on the the lights. So when God picks up his rod and his staff, are you afraid or are you relieved? The psalmist says, your rod and your staff comfort me. They comfort me. There is this unwavering trust that God is good. God is good. God does not use his power to condemn, but to save and protect, to comfort. God is not out to get you. God is not out to get you. Instead, he is out to rescue you and restore your soul, as it says. And so as you come to God, whether it is to cry for help or to confess your sin, know that God is good. As it says in Hebrews, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let us run to God, trusting that he does not bring condemnation, but comfort. This is who God is. What do you believe about God? In the midst of dark valleys, do you believe that he is present? Do you believe that he is with you? As you come to God, do you believe that he is good? Can you say with the psalmist, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. God is here and God is good. Now, the last couple of verses in the psalm are quite a change of scenery. Uh, No longer are we being led through the wilderness or walking through the dark valley. Suddenly, we're in the house of the Lord. And there's this table that's being prepared before us. Right? God has gone from being a shepherd in the midst of our challenges to our host beyond the challenges. Green pastures, still waters, and ripe paths have become a table, an overflowing cup, and anointing oil as we are welcomed. And there's a few things that, that really stand out to me. 
in these last couple of verses. First, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What does that mean? What's going on there? I think there's a few ways to, to consider this. I mean, one way that this has been understood is that this is ultimately a, a picture of victory, right? That, that, you know, in the face of my enemies, God is preparing a table for me. And there may be some piece of that. But the more that I read and consider it, and the more that I especially consider it in light of Jesus, as I wonder if this is a picture not primarily of victory uh, in the face of enemies, but one of hospitality to our enemies. God prepares a table before me, and guess who's also there? My enemies. Jesus calls us, right, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. And so in the midst of dark valleys, in the midst of facing our enemies, this picture reminds us that we are not to destroy them, but to welcome them. But to be a people of radical hospitality saying, come join me at this table. Even though you've hated me, even though there have been these immense conflicts, God prepares a table for me and for you. That's challenging stuff. You see, a lot of times these last couple of verses have kind of transported us into heaven somewhere, right? We're sitting at a table on and on. There's a piece of that. But just as Jesus said, we're praying for the kingdom to come. And so how can we transform our enemies into table guests with us? Or this other word that jumps out in verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Uh, follow is not quite the best translation of this word. As I was reading in some commentaries, a better way of translating it is pursue. Goodness and mercy are not passively following us around. They are actively pursuing us. One of the uh, commentaries that I read said, you know, if we keep that shepherd image, goodness and mercy are God's sheepdogs. They're the ones who pursue us, who rally us, who bring us back. Goodness and mercy pursue us all the days of our life. And so this is not a picture of being transported to some other reality someday. This is a picture of how we are to live here and now. A people who are guided by our good shepherd. A people who are pursued by goodness and mercy. A people who trust God in the midst of darkness and welcome our enemies at the table of the Lord. You see, this image of shepherd persists. We already talked about how it persisted in the time of, of David to, to talk about the kings and how they should be humble leaders. But Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd. See, Jesus is the one who leads us through the wilderness. 
Jesus is the one who has gone to the darkest valley, even the valley of the shadow of death, his death on the cross. And Jesus is the one who has gone before us to prepare a table, who calls us towards that even now. This is the goodness of God the gospel of Jesus. So as we move to the table today, we look forward to that day of feasting and rejoicing, that table that he has prepared for us. And so I want to uh, introduce a song to all of us. It's one that you may have actually heard. Uh, we, you know, we've had it playing before service before. Uh, it's been in some of the, the video things that we've done in the past. But it's not one that we've actually sung together. And so we're going to have the music on the screen, but the recording is also going to play. But I encourage you, as you listen and look, join in and sing along as we wait for that day and trust that he has prepared a table. and We will feast with him. Amen.